we are going to focus in this session on the glory of God. I want to read to you from Philippians 4, verses 18 through 23. This is what Paul writes. He says, I am well supplied, having received from, from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And to God and Father, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this little portion right here is what we call a doxology. And that is just a fancy word that is it really literally translated. It means a word about glory. Okay, and so typically what you'll see in scripture is you'll see different doxologies spread all throughout. And typically what happens is that there is some type of rich emotional doctrine or truth about who God is or his character or his might. There will be an expression of this. And then all of a sudden at the very end, there's this doxology of praise and worship. And it, it talks about the glory and the greatness of who our God is. I, um, a couple of, or this last week, our staff, um, we are having uh, some training with, with our staff and we're doing this thing called the Strengths Finder, which is basically, you know, kind of like a personality assessment, but it helps you understand each other and work together better and all this kind of thing. And um, we were talking, uh, one of Pastor Justin's strengths is uh, related to positivity and, and there are a few others that have that. And um, when we were there, I was beginning to understand more and more and more because when you don't have that strength, um, there sometimes you just don't understand it the way that it is so alive in somebody else. And as I was sitting there, you know, listening to all these kind of things, it dawned on me. And I thought to myself, I thought, this is why Pastor Justin, a lot of times, he's very affirming, very encouraging. But there are some times where it's like, if he doesn't get it out of his soul, it's going to corrode his insides, you know? And so he just comes and he's just like, you know, you know you're just amazing and I, I just love you and just, just all of this kind of thing. That is a doxology. It's when the writer is just going on and on and on about all the good things and the character of God and his nature and all of these things. And then it's just like at a certain point, he can't handle it anymore. And he just has to say, glory to God and his greatness and his majesty. And he goes on and on and on. It's something that is so deep inside that it just comes forth. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing in the first three chapters, is, it's just riddled with doctrinal truth about the goodness of God and his grace and his mercy and all of these things. And then here near the end of chapter three, Paul just explodes with, with the doxology and he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology. It's a word of glory that just springs forth from a person as they meditate on the deep riches and the doctrinal truths of who God is. But the question I want to um, attempt to answer tonight is this. But what is the glory of God? 
I don't know if you've ever considered this question before. If someone were to come to you and give you a pen and paper and to say, articulate for me, what is the glory of God? How you would articulate it. And so I remember reading something John Piper wrote one time and somebody had asked him about the glory of God and he basically said this. He said, um, you know, if, if I came and gave you a basketball, I could hand you the basketball, you could touch it, you could feel it, I could describe it to you, I could say it's round and it's leather and it has grip and it has these, you know, this, this curvature, but it also has these, these rings in it and you're supposed to use it to do this and that and all these kind of things. He said, I can describe it to you, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can fully understand it if I described a basketball to you. But if I tried to describe beauty to you, how would you articulate what beauty is? Well, you probably couldn't articulate what it is. But for every single one of us, when we see something that's beautiful, we know it, right? And so what Piper does is he relates that to the glory of God. He says it's not something that can really at its core be defined. It's not something that you can touch or describe what it looks like. But when you sense the glory of God or when you see the coming of the glory of God, you know it beyond the shadow of a doubt. And so tonight what I want to do is I just want to take you through a few things that, that relate to the glory of God, okay? Now, this is going to be like a JV exercise, okay? This is definitely not varsity level of what we're going to talk about, but I just kind of want to give us a, a real general understanding about the glory of God, um, especially as we approach the most magnificent time of the year um, with the Christmas season coming. We talk a lot about the glory of God, and so hopefully as we are able to leave here tonight, we will have a better idea or understanding when we hear the phraseology, the glory of God. So if you have your notes, let's go ahead and jump in. Number one is, is this. There is a general glory of God that exists. Okay, what I mean by this is that the glory of God, and this is the best definition that I could probably give, okay? The glory of God is the outward expression of the holiness of God of the character, of the core of who God is, the glory is like what comes from that. So at the core of who God is, he is holy, right? Um, this is why in scripture you see the angels, the created beings, they fall and they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which is also kind of a nod to the Trinitarian God, right? Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word holy, um, most of you are probably familiar, the word holy means to be separated from everything else that's ordinary. It means to be very different, something that was um, you know, used in, in Old Testament times that was going to be used in the temple. You would create it, but you wouldn't create it for ordinary use. It would only be able to be used in the temple because it was considered something that was holy. It was, it was different than everything else. That is who God is. We like to relate to God because, thank God, because of his son who was God, but also human, he related to us on the human level. But it's very important for us to understand that God is not in his essence and in his being, he is not human. He is very other than what we are. 
This is why scripture says his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are so beyond our thoughts. Like we can't even begin to comprehend because he is so other, he is so different than what we are, not just in the way that we think and not just in the way that we see, but in his essence. We carry the image of God within us so that we can identify and connect on some level, but we are not little gods. He is so different, he is so other, and his very essence and his character, they are absorbed in his infinite values of goodness and glory and majesty and perfection and without fail and without flaw. He is the essence of everything perfect. And in the midst of the core of all these things, which we'll call the, the holiness of God at the core of him, what radiates from his being is glory. It's like the overflow of who he is. You've been sitting with a, a person or you've seen on television a person, uh, maybe that um, if you've ever watched these crazy documentaries with um, these people who are serial killers or whatever, and you know, there are some of these guys that you can just see them come on the television screen and immediately you're just like, there is evil that is coming off this guy, right? You, you can sense that. Well, that's a, that's a reverse example of, of God. At the core of this person's being, there is evil, there is wickedness. And so therefore, there is like this aura that comes off of them that reveals who they are. God, in his essence, is holy in perfection. And out of the core of who he is overflows this idea of glory, okay? So this is the way Isaiah would write it. Isaiah said that the angelic host, they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So they were saying, this is who God is at his core. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord. He is almighty. He is all of these things. But this is the overflow of that. And the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, the essence of God is holiness. And as an overflow, the earth is filled with his glory. It is the expression of his holiness that's overflowing. It's kind of like uh, if you have ever sat by a campfire, okay? In the middle of darkness, all of a sudden when you create a fire, the core of it is fire and it will burn you, okay? But out of the core comes two things. Number one comes illumination. Is illumination the fire? No, it's the overflow of what the fire is. And another thing that comes from what the fire is, is the heat that you feel. Does that make sense? It's almost like the outer layer. It's almost like the shield of what it is at its core that is affecting us. And so when we sense the presence of God in a truly manifested way, we are not just sensing like who God is. We cannot handle who God is. But God has overflowed onto us, and therefore we sense his glory as a taste or a foretaste of what we will see when we meet him face to face. It's the radiance that shines off of him, okay? So this is why angelic hosts all throughout scripture. Scripture says that usually when angelic hosts, they arrive and they come in contact with the human person, what does the human do? They fall immediately. Oftentimes they begin to worship. What does the angel say? Get up, I am not the Lord. Okay, do not worship me. But what has happened is that the angel doesn't possess glory, 
but they have been in the presence of glory. And that glory has rubbed off on them to such the degree that when humans come in contact, the glory is like proceeding off of the angelic hosts, okay? So this is the idea of, of a general sense of glory. The core of who God is is holiness, it's majesty, it's his infinite values. But because of that, there is a reaction, there is an overflow that can't be contained and it's the glory of God that fills the universe, okay? So that is a general idea of what the glory of God is. Number two, there are specific ways that God manifests his glory. Number one, in your notes, God reveals his glory in his creative and redemptive acts, okay? Psalm 19 says this, the heavens, listen to this, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all of the world. The skies declare the glory of God because they are a reflection, his creative works, everything that we see in the world today. This is a result of what God has created and therefore there's glory that's attached to it. This is why scripture says the whole earth is filled with your glory. It's the overflow of who God is that has crept into our being. So God reveals his glory through creative and redemptive acts. But number two, God oftentimes reveals his glory via light, okay? Now, let me, let me run you through Old Testament to New Testament here and just give you an idea of, of what I mean by this. Um, oftentimes when God reveals himself, he comes in the form of, of light, okay? So the spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, okay? And he speaks and says, let there be light, okay? That is a manifestation of what God has spoken and a manifestation of what God has spoken is the glory of God. It's come in a light form. As Moses delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt, they're led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a fire by night. They're led by the light that God produces for them. When Moses uh, ascends the hill of Mount Sinai and he meets with God for 40 days. When he comes down from the mountain, he had to cover his face because the glory of God had absorbed into his flesh. And the Bible says that his face shone as if it were a light itself, okay? When we look at the incarnation of Jesus at the birth of Christ, remember the angels come down and the Bible says, and, and the glory of God shone about them right? Uh, the glory of God's light shone about them. The Christmas star that hovered over Bethlehem and the wise men went and they said, we've seen this, this star and they go and they begin to follow the star. The Bible says that the star moved and it led them into Bethlehem and that the star stopped over the place where the child was. This was not a star in the sense that we think a star. This was a moving object most scholars believe that this was the Shekinah, it was an event of the Shekinah glory of God. That it was the light, it was the manifestation of God's glory being shown as a witness to the essence of Messiah. When Paul is on the road of Damascus, 
the Lord himself comes down and the light knocks him off of his horse and the light is so bright that it blinds Paul for three days. He's blinded by the light, the manifestation of glory. In the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible says that there will be no sun, there will be no moon, for the glory of God will be the light to all things, okay? So oftentimes, the, the, the holiness of God reveals itself. God reveals himself and his characteristics by expressing light. It's, like, it's almost like the character of God, the core of who God is, can't just stay contained in this thing. It, it, it shines forth. It's so powerful. And sometimes he chooses to do that in light form. Number three, God also reveals himself sometimes in presence, okay? And this is probably the most, the, the way that we most identify with God's glory is through his presence. Now, the word Shekinah, um, the Shekinah glory just basically means where God dwells, you know? And, and this is the type of dwelling that we want. We want God to dwell with us. We want God to dwell in the house of God with us, that when we come to meet with the Lord, he comes to meet with us. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the word um, for, for glory is translated, it's not just a, a dwelling, but there's a heaviness. You can like, there's, there's some type of tangibility there. I can sense something that I, it's not tangible, but I know it's here. Right? It's back to the idea of beauty. I, I, I don't know what it is. I can't articulate it, but I know it when I experience it. Um, throughout the scripture, you see as, as the, the people of God, as Moses has them erect uh, the tabernacle, okay? You see where the, the manifest presence of God, he comes and he reveals his glory in the tabernacle in, in presence form. And it was so heavy that the people of God, the ministers of God, the Levites, they could not even minister because the presence of God was weighing so heavily upon them, right? Um, this is the concentrated presence of God that we long to experience. We want God to settle among us. We want the heaviness of God to, to weigh on us. And this is probably the way that we understand and identify uh, God revealing his glory the most, okay? Number four, God also reveals his glory in the Son of God. John 1.14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Notice the language of the prophet Isaiah as he's foretelling that Messiah is going to come. He says, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. They've seen a great glory that's come upon them. Jesus, as he walks the earth, he performs miracles. John calls them signs. He calls them wonders. Um, Jesus teaches in a profound way. Uh, the word, the literal word um, for Jesus' teaching in the book of Mark, the literal word is uh, superhuman authority. He had a super, there was something so different and so unique about Jesus when he taught. It was the glory of God coming forth from his words. 
We see this maximized at the transfiguration. You remember he goes to the mountain or to the side of the mountain and the Bible says that, that Moses and Elijah come to visit him and in that moment he is transfigured from the human you know, Jesus into the son of God. They, the, some of the disciples see the full glory of God as he is manifested. It's so important that we understand when Jesus would, would walk and he would perform miracles or when he would open blinded eyes or raise up a paralytic, when he would do those things, it wasn't just something Jesus would do. It's, it's what Jesus is at his core. And that glory just kind of seeped out. And when it seeped out, it healed, it restored, it made whole, it made complete. Why? Because at the core of who God is, everything is whole. Everything is restored. Everything is complete. And so the manifestation of all of that completeness of God is his glory. And when that glory touches us, it makes us whole and complete on all these different levels. So it's important for us to understand that God reveals his glory in, in several different ways. Okay. But it's also important for us to remember that there is a, a way that we express glory to God. Okay. Um, when people give glory to God, it is their response to God's glory, if that makes sense. They have seen the glory of God, whether in the heavens above, in the skies, or in the beauty of nature, or they have sensed the presence of God, the weightiness of God. And the response when a person sees or witnesses those things, their response is to give glory, is to say yes. And as we do this, God receives. It is not that God is, it's not that when we glorify God, that God is becoming more and more glorious. It's not like he's this big. And then when he leaves one of our worship services where we've given God a lot of glory, that he's this big now. No, God is immutable. God isn't changing. We can never make him more glorious, but we can make him more glorified. Okay, so if, if a child has never experienced who God is and he sees who God is, he, he begins to glorify God. God is being glorified, but he's not becoming more glorious. Well, that child goes and tells seven or eight friends, maybe some family members, and all of a sudden you've got a dozen people who are giving glory to God. It's not that God is becoming more glorious, but he is becoming more glorified because more people are giving him glory, if that makes sense. So, so it's important for us to, to respond to the glory of God with giving God glory. And when we fail to give God glory, consequences follow. Romans 1. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So when we experience the glory of God, we see him manifest in whichever ways that he chooses, and we refuse to give God glory, there are consequences. There is an effect upon our thinking and our perception. There is an idolatry that's formed. Notice what scripture says. They didn't glorify him as God. So they created a God that was different more to their liking. Then as a result, when these things begin to happen, the mind is messed up, all these things, ultimately the hearts are darkened. 
And so the best thing that we can do when we encounter the glory of God is to give him more glory, is to make him more glorified here in the earth. This is the design and the functionality of every human creature who has ever lived. And when we do not abide by our design and our function, there is something that is broken within us. And so we have to be a people who, when we receive or when we experience the glory of God, we reciprocate that by giving him glory. Number four is this. There is some glory that is reserved for God alone. Okay? Now, I want to be very, very clear. I am not talking about encouragement. I'm not talking about expressing appreciation. I think, you know, these things are spiritual gifts that God gave to us to help each other, to strengthen one another. What I'm talking about is an unhealthy exaltation of a human being. Talking about putting a person in a, in a status of elevation that no person should ever really be. When we begin to do that, we are taking glory that is due to God and we are giving it to a human being. Listen to me, even if that's not our intent, that's what's happening, okay? Listen to what um, uh, Luke writes in the book of Acts chapter 12, okay? Herod, this is a different Herod than the, the one who murdered all the babies. This is his offspring. He's meeting with, uh, delegates are meeting with some of his officials because they need water. They need food. There's imports and exports that need to happen. And so they come to this agreement and the delegates come into Herod's presence. And the Bible says this, when the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes sat on his throne and made a speech to them. The people gave a great ovation, shouting, it's the voice of a God, not a man. Instantly, listen to me say this, instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and he died. I remember years ago in the great Brownsville revival, uh, Steve Hill made this statement. He was talking to, to ministers or budding ministers and he made this statement. He said, whatever you do, don't touch the three G's. Don't touch the girls, don't touch the gold and don't touch the glory. People were never created to possess two things. We were never created to possess sin, and we were never created to possess glory. And it's for the same reason. Because when a human possesses sin, it will destroy them from the inside out. And when a person possesses glory from another person, it will also destroy them from the inside out. We look today and we wonder why all of these, you know, phenomenal men and women who God has used so mightily around the world, we look at them at certain points in their life and they've fallen from grace. They've, you know, they've had affairs or they have just, you know, imploded and, you know, or whatever the case is, they've, they've fallen from grace. They've had moral failures and all these things. And, and God knows it's only by his grace that, that we don't. 
But I think there's another element to that. And I think one of the elements is that in Western culture, we love to elevate people. For whatever reason, I don't know if there's like a vacancy of God in our hearts and we feel like we gotta fill that with somebody or something. And so we take a person and we put them on a pedestal and we begin to elevate them, not in a way of honor. Listen, but I will say this, there is a fine line between honor and idolatry. And I think that when we have elevated these people and we have insulated these people and we've only, they've only allowed people in their inner circle to tell them how wonderful and how great they are and continue to give them glory and to never come in with a corrective Nathan the prophet voice and to say, no, this is not right in your life. When they continue to receive glory that is not theirs, it will destroy their souls and they will have a fall from grace. And we wonder why. And for many of us, it's because we have contributed to that. And we'd like to look and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm like devastated every time I see, a, you know, a man of God fall or something like that. But then I take a step back and I say, well, did I contribute to this? Did I contribute to this by making this man more than a man, right? Did I feed into this desire for glory? But that's one thing that we were never designed to touch. We were never designed to touch the glory of God. We must stay away from it. And then finally, number five is this. The glory of God must be respected. When the glory of God comes to us through presence, we must be aware that he has come. You, you want to know, there, there's a, a very short list of devastating verses in scripture. And, and in my short list, this is up there. This is one of the top ones. This is Christ talking in Matthew chapter 19. He's talking to the Jewish people, and this is what he says. He says, you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, when the Son of God, the Messiah, appeared in his glory, when he made a visitation among you, you didn't recognize him for who he was. You treated him as common. You treated him as something other than what he was. And it was an indictment against them because they didn't have the spiritual sensitivity to be aware that Messiah has come and you can experience his glory. God, help us to have spiritually sensitive antennas, to have hearts that are humble and welcome and respective of who God is when he comes in his presence. Then finally, number two, when the glory of God comes through presence, we must be a people who are reverent. I'm reminded of Aaron's two sons who were ministering to the Lord and they just, they, they, they made a few wrong moves. They just, they didn't, they didn't, you know, take the type of, of material to the Lord's presence that God required. And as a result of that, God struck them dead. I think of Uzzah who was, you know, we would look at this, this story where, you know, they are trying to take the ark of God which was, you know, the, the representation of the presence of God. They were trying to transport the ark from one location back to its rightful location. And, and Uzzah is, you know, he's with this group and the ark falls. They, they have it on a cart and, and the cart falls and he reaches down and tries to do it. And when he does that, he touches it. God strikes him dead. And we look at that and we say, well, that, that's kind of unjust. That doesn't make sense. How could God be, you know, like that with all these kind of things? Well, listen to me say this. It wasn't necessarily that God hated Uzzah. It wasn't even necessary that Uzzah's in hell today. The fact remains, 
that they had the presence of God with them and they treated the presence of God as something common. The ark was never to be carried on a cart. It was to be carried on poles. Therefore, it never touched something that was used. It was, it, those poles were holy. They were only used for that. The cart was not holy. The cart was used to haul manure and all kinds of different things. They had treated the presence of God with contempt. And when Uzzah stepped out as, as, as you know, honorable as a, a, a move that is, only the Levites were those who were allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And when he treated the presence of God with contempt, it did not end well for him. Now, we in the new covenant with what Christ has done for us, we live in a whole different place than some of these examples we're dealing with. We are now emboldened to approach the throne of grace, as the writer of Hebrews says, with, with tremendous confidence. He uses the word boldness, I like the word confidence. We, we approach God with great confidence as his sons and daughters. But I think it's so important that we remember that we, we approach him with confidence. We don't approach him carelessly. We still remember who he is in his holiness, that he is other, that he is almighty, that he is the God and creator of all things. And who are we that he would even have a thought of us? We've got to remember that it keeps us humble. It keeps us hungry. It keeps us in a position to receive him when he comes. And man, isn't that the desire of all of our hearts to see the manifested glory of God come in so close and to spill over into our lives, into our churches, into our ministries, into our families. And I believe as we honor, we position our hearts, we have the right disposition. I believe God wants to meet us in that way even more than we want him. Amen. 